Dan, what are you going to go do after we're done recording? Uh, I'm going to go and see some cello, punk, punk, cello, one-man band, cello, death metal, punk thing. Double bass pedal, cello, music. You're going to go see my, a man my, in his underwear. My favorite genre. <laughs> it's my favorite genre. A man in his underwear plays double bass pedal drums and cello and, and, and screams death metal. Hardcore. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Jo- okay, genre I just wanted fusion, to get that. I wanted yeah, to get that out of the way just before, good. just so everybody's on the same I don't even know page. what his name is. Mr. <laughs> Maurice or something? Mr. I Maurice, Mr. Ma- Link yeah. will be in the description. <laughs> <laughs> Um, whoa, Dan, we did. We just had a once again, very fascinating um, conversation with a very fascinating person. And actually, Dan, for the first two time, guests. two fascinating people. Wow, <laughs> look at that. Um, and neither of them were us. And neither of them were us. Once again, purely passive observers to intellectual <laughs> conversation and intellectual ideas. Um, Dan, we just spoke to, uh, Donal came on. Donal was here. What's up, Donal? Donal uh, of episode, I think, 83 came on. Um, Thank you, Donal. You know who Donal is. He's, you know, he's been on the show before, blah, blah. You know what he does. Friend of the um, show. Repeat. Friend of the show. Re- repeat I'm looking guest. <laughs> repeat guest. I hadn't thought of that. The first repeat guest. That's what podcasters say, isn't it? Friend <laughs> of the show. Two-time appearance. <laughs> two-time appearance. Wow, that's fascinating. Interesting. Who'd have thunk it? But then also... Um, we had a listener of ours on named Roger and Roger is just a fellow who reached out to us last week, week before something like that. And was like, um, Hey, consider these interesting ideas about systems theory, about cybernetics and about workplace organization. And, um, all this VSM stuff is gump and and why all this VSM stuff that you've wasted your lives on is garbage. Um, we have exaggerate, but, but also we were sufficiently provoked. <laughs> yeah, in, well, yeah, but in we'll the positive, we were. Yeah. Exactly. But anyway, he spoke in such an interesting way that we uh, decided to have him on the show. And he'd also been in communication with Donald as well. And so Donald came on, Roger came on, and we just had a big powwow chat about systems theory. Um, what do you think, Dan? I thought that went really well. I think it was a great conversation. I don't know whether we had a powwow chat or whether we just picked Roger's brain <laughs> yeah. about all things capitalist planning that are not the viable system model. Um, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I say this of every guest, but it's, um, it's 100% true always and 100%, 110% true now. I'm wow. delighted by the conversation, and um, my thinking is enriched for having it had it happen. So thank you, yeah. Roger and Donald, for. Uh, coming home and on and having this great conversation with us yeah um yeah roger got in contact and suggested a we often we solicit episode ideas and um and roger suggested that maybe we should engage some um forms of economic planning uh models for economic planning that might be applicable to a socialist economy that do not derive from um the viable system model not uh, Yes, uh, yes, Stafford Beer and the, the VSM. Um, so we read a bunch of those articles and then um, had this great conversation that we're about to listen to. Yeah, and I think this one is a bit in-depth, I would say. And I would say that maybe, listener, you should do some of the reading for once. Don't just leave it all up to us. I would suggest two of the essays specifically that Roger sent us Um Maybe read before you listen to this, or at least have a skim, because basically what we're talking about are concrete proposals for actually changing your 
workplace or just manufacturing and production in general, because kind of the main idea that Roger's working with is that the Bible system model as such, Berean cybernetics, doesn't necessarily tell you how the workplace is going to change, how the shop floor itself is going to change when you come in, as he says, on Monday morning, right? Like, how is this actually going to overcome alienation? How are we actually going to um, create workplaces where, you know, you're the guy that staples heels onto shoes, but now that the revolution happens, you're the socialist guy that staples heels onto shoes, right? Like, how can we actually change workplaces to be less alienating and more, um, uh, not just less alienating, like just better, like more productive even. And um, the two of the essays that I think, dear listeners, you should probably read. One of them is about two production plants uh, uh, that Volvo opened up in Sweden and about how these were kind of uh, a big leap forward in what he calls or what is called humanistic production. And then there's another essay all about kind of like coal production and socio-technical systems that kind of brings up a lot of the same ideas. And it's kind of a way of thinking about new forms of industrial democracy that aren't councils, that aren't unions, and that aren't co-ops, right? It's like this special fourth thing. And it uh, has to do with just listening to workers. I think that's maybe the most interesting thing I found about well, all of this. Towards the end of the conversation, we hear us be like, so what are these proposals? Like, how can we actually apply these to different workplaces? And he, Roger was like, well, maybe just listen to workers because they know what's best. And it's like, oh, right, I'm a socialist. I forgot about that. So this was a really good deep dive away from the abstractions and really into concrete proposals for, um, you know, actually changing things, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, might not be an easy fix. We'll see. But it might be. I don't know. Listeners, let us know. Let us know what you think um, about the VSM criticisms and all of that. But um, once again, huge thank you to Roger. I had a blast with this, I think. Yeah, it was good fun. Yeah, I think it's a nice it's a nice mix of a very concrete historical example, but minded toward clear cases of interventions that were made in workplaces um, that were done under the auspices of like bourgeois management theory or what have you. But um, the central crux of most of those are empowering workers to give them more autonomy in the workplace and how that actually is in many cases beneficial for um, capitalist outcomes as well as the the welfare of the workers. Now we do get onto it in the, in the episode a little bit about um, we're not saying that like, both are possible at the same time and we're going to give up being socialists and wait for sort of like um enter into some kind of like uh uh pact with the capitalists to bring about some kind of utopia but um there are really important takeaways and really concrete examples of how this kind of um economic model can function um and it represents powerful counter examples to what is the norm in capitalist planning which is command and control very top-down disciplining of the workers and stifling their autonomy or their sort of re replacing them with technology or demeaning their work kind of thing so uh yeah really fascinating stuff yeah and and just one one thing too and this has been something i've been thinking about a lot and i think we've been kind of bandying about on the show is that like marxism is this excellent it, well it's like the framework you need to have to basically understand cycles of accumulation and why our society is the way that it is right and, uh, you know, 
by studying the social relations, you eventually wound up uh, going, having this eureka moment going, oh, so this is what we need to change if we actually want a world that isn't just going to like, you know, collapse in an apocalypse or whatever. Right. But also you need to pair with that concrete proposals for actually changing things. Right. Like Marxism isn't necessarily going to in itself explain how we can produce steel without fossil fuels. Right. Or how we can, uh, I don't know create better transportation networks. And in this case, how we can maybe organize our workplaces, because one could imagine if there was a communist revolution, you would still, there, there's a, I'm not saying it's happened before, Dan, but you might wind up with a pretty shitty society anyways. And a lot of that has to do with actual concrete proposals for changing industry, changing workplaces, and um, actually doing science. Imagine that. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, I, I in thinking about all the stuff, I was reminded of in um, when we read Old Gods, New Enigmas, how his message in that is basically like, listen, first first thing you got to do is read Marx and then just go do research on everything else. Once you have that as a framework, then you can get down to the concrete stuff. So that's what this interview is all about. Um, and I think people will yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. Go, go and see what the workers are doing before you try and make some kind of intervention in their lives. And I guess the same would apply to any organization. Work out what people are actually trying to do before you make a plan for what prescription you're going to give, I guess. Maybe even what people want, too. I know that's a little radical, mm-hmm. but like, whoa, you know, maybe actually talk with people instead of just having a goddamn podcast where you get on here and complain about why the world isn't communist yet. Anyway, hey, a bit close to the bone there. <laughs> yeah, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Um, all right, enough from us. We'll get to it. Thanks, huge thanks again to Roger and uh, to Donald for coming on. Um, this rocked. Enjoy the interview. All right, Roger. Well, thanks for coming on. I, I know that we all kind of have read your emails that you sent. We're all very kind of like excited to talk about this stuff. Um, to start us off, do you think you could just kind of give us a bit of a background that you have in terms of like the complexity theory stuff and all the systems theory and kind of how you came to be interested in all this? Okay, this goes back a long time to um, the Horizon episode. If you've never seen it before, Horizon is a BBC popular science TV series. And it goes back to an episode called The Wrong Stuff, which was broadcast in uh, 1986. And I watched uh, when I was five years old. So, you know, I didn't choose human factors. Human factors chose me. And this was an episode about uh, aviation safety. Um, this was um, in the mid-80s when they were first really getting human factors and crew resource management um, into, um, into operation in the airlines. And I was obsessed by this program. I watched it over and over again. And that sort of soaked into my mind about in a lot of ways how I think about things. But it went then it went dormant for many years and then um i became a a socialist when i was 14 and i went along with the party line for a number of years and then uh, started reading about it more and thinking about it more and realizing that what had happened in russia had essentially gone started going downhill immediately and i love that led me to picking through why did this happen what happened the um, what did they do wrong? And um, this, I'd back when I was still fully believing the party line. I'd read uh, the books on complexity theory. I'm looking at my shelf now. Um, specifically, M. Mitchell Waldrop's Complexity. 
and I loved that book. And, uh, you know, it was like uh, as rather thinking about complexity theory as being like a sort of secular mysticism. It's like an altered state of consciousness where you feel like you can see through the skin of the world. That was, to me, a, a very correct, you know, it was obviously the right thing um, was right, but it doesn't tell you anything that you should be doing. You know, it's like a higher level of abstraction that you understand how the world works, but not what to do about it. And since then, I've read a lot more books like um, Chaos and Out of Control by Kevin Kelly, and I've got a whole shelf full of books on it. But I was also looking for the stuff that explains what you actually do. And this led me down some uh, various alleys. I read books about project management and industrial relations and stuff like that. And then uh, a friend of mine who worked at, uh, he'd worked at a paper mill and then a chemical plant, and he was talking about the ISO 1500 or 15,000, which is the environmental standard. And he says that that's a really good thing, a good standard, but was saying that ISO 9001 was ju just a nightmare. And that got me curious. I, I typed it later after I'd done talking to him. I typed it in, you know, ISO 9000 and got onto this list of, um, on Wikipedia, like in the further reading kind of section. There's a section, um, there was one book called The Case Against ISO 9000. Okay, that looks interesting. Clicked on that for more details and found John Seddon's website, which is for his company called Vanguard, and the thing he developed called the Vanguard Method. And the irony of the name of this is not lost on me. Um, but I read through his his website back then, had all the detail on it, you know, had loads and loads of free articles on it. And reading through, uh, the, you could learn the, the whole system from the website pretty much. And reading it through, I thought, yeah, this is it. This is the thing I've been looking for. And... Um, I've got a book out here if you if we want to get into more detail about how that system works. But after I sort of absorbed that, I started wanting to look into all the other stuff that's in like the uh, the reference list and the bibliography in those in those books. And that led me to um, looking at my bookshelf again. Uh, stuff like uh, W. Edward Deming's books, Out of the Crisis and the New Economics, um, Taichi Ono's books. Uh, Shigeo Shingo, which is all about the Toyota production system, which was kind of um, one of the branches that uh, the Vanguard method comes from, which was developed. For, well, it's got sort of an interesting family tree. Part of it comes from American managers who in the Second World War really figured out how to run the war industries uh, to, a, to an incredible high level of uh, efficiency. But then what happens is um, the war ends. All the old workers and management come back, uh, displace the uh, like uh, the the industrial workers who'd been in the war, who were like mostly women, and in America a lot of them black and Latina as well. You know they were all booted out, and all the managers who knew how to do this system went as well. They. They got the push because they thought, you know, America's the biggest power in the world. We don't need anybody telling us how to run our industries. So all those managers uh, decide to hell with that. We're going to go help rebuild Japan. 
And at the same time, in as they go to Japan at the same time, uh, Toyota, particularly under the the uh, the guidance of Taichi Ono, are, re, are building up a new industrial system based around what their their economies require. You know, they can't work on the massive scale America can, so they have to work with um, you know what they've got, and they come up with this. Uh, new production system to optimize the workflow with what they have then this develops over decades and um, becomes an incredibly efficient and potent system of industrial organization and that's one of um, that's one of the uh, sort of branches of the family tree and then coming back to uh, much more recently I don't know, like the last four or five years I also got back into uh, human factors and crew resource management, which I was originally primed to think about by the Horizon documentary. And so part of that is to do with human-machine interaction, like how the controls are laid out, like are they all visible? Uh, do, they become in, do they become hard to see if the sun is shining at the wrong angle? Is everything just comfortably in reach? That sort of stuff. And then the other half of it is sort of interpersonal relationships, where you've gone, um, when they first started having cockpit voice recorders in planes, they, um, before then, they just thought plane crashes are just something that happens, you know, and we don't really know why or how it, it happens if it's not a straight out mechanical failure. But then when they started getting cockpit voice recorders, it became blatantly obvious that the flight engineer and the co pilot are fully aware that the plane is about to fly into the side of a mountain. But they can't say anything about it because they can't. They feel like they can't question the captain's authority. So this led to a whole new development of uh, what ultimately became crew resource management, which was very much about creating a safe environment where where people feel they can speak up. And it also comes with a lot of the socio technical system stuff, like how um, how memory and perception and learning and stuff like that works uh, in very specific detail. Like, and that's where the whole thing about using checklists comes from and all the detail that was developed in. And that has started, all that knowledge has started moving out from where, just where it started. And now it, it's becoming, it's in a lot of places. It's in hospitals, it's in um, emergency services, and it has to be altered slightly because, you know, there's a difference between the cockpit of a plane, um, an operating theatre and a burning building. But it, the basic principles work uh, across all, um, you know, basically everywhere it's been tried, it works with the necessary modifications. See what, and, you know, the stuff I sent you about... Uh, like the mines and Volvo Calamar is one end of that where socio-technical systems lead. And uh, check my books again. What else did I need to mention? Oh, yeah, it's sort of related to all this. Um, this is like the big picture systems perspective. But as you get more down into relating to people, you know, like uh, interpersonal relationships and small group dynamics, there is part of that in crew resource management. But also... There's also a lot of stuff I think we can learn from that, from stuff like um, humanistic psychotherapy, motivational interviewing, coaching, counselling, you know, all that stuff about um, person-centred work, where the, uh, it's all about, you know, basically it's all 
empowering the individual and stuff like that. Although that not exclusively, like the systems I've learned, sometimes uh, the person in charge does need to be bossy. But overall, there's a lot, uh, it feeds in a lot to that sort of stuff about the the person, per, putting the person or the, the group of people in charge and giving them as much independence as, as possible does work as a good underlying basic principle. And so to bring that all back around to being a socialist again, this is what I think fixes essentially everything. You know, everything that went wrong in Russia, in a lot of other near-miss revolutions, you know, I, I think this heals a lot of the, the breach between Marxism and anarchism. Uh, and in terms of, like, um, how, you, how you'd run a radical leftist organisation, how you'd run things like strike committees as... Uh, the class struggle heats up and um, ultimately once you've seized the means of production and you're running it yourself again this just works for it all i think i think this that's something i'm really interested in is just like the concrete nature of everything that we've talked about because i think that like i think one of the reasons that like marxism is so valuable right is because it is able to give you this abstraction to understand kind of just the way that cycles of accumulation works and the way that our society works by understanding actual given social relations. But something that I've like been thinking a lot about recently is that, you know, you will still need to actually understand how to run a shop floor. And so I'm interested in kind of one of the criticisms that you had when we'd been emailing back and forth, and maybe Donal, you can actually touch on this a little bit, is you were talking a little bit about the Bible systems model, which is like the one thing that Dan and I have like, uh, kind of come across as a way to potentially organize workplaces. And it's, you know, something that we've found really kind of enlightening about how do you build a viable system? What does it actually need to have? So maybe before we kind of get into any criticisms of it, maybe Donnelly, you could actually just talk a little bit about what it is about the viable system model that at least to you kind of was this kind of like aha moment of systems theory before we can kind of get into like a little bit of the kind of, well, does that actually change the kind of concrete shop floor kind of stuff? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, just in, in correspondence with, uh, with Roger uh, over the last um, week or two, uh, you know, I was, I was very interested to hear his view where he actually has some, and I'm sure you, you'll speak about it, Roger, uh, some kind of uh, criticisms of the viable system model. And uh, it's very interesting, you know, I was saying to him that uh, this is actually the first time I've come across someone not even on the left, but just someone who actually has made a, a critique of the viable system model and who, who has things to say about it, you know, that isn't exclusively positive. And I kind of feel like, at least for myself, maybe for, for us in general, the left cybernetics crowd, we are a little bit um, kind of, you know, sheltered uh, intellectually or, uh, or in terms of the, the discussions that we have, because, uh, yeah, it seems like... Um, on the left, there's almost an exclusive uh, support for the, the VSM idea and for beardy and cybernetics in general, if you want to call it that. Even people who, uh, that, that I would think, don't uh, advocate beardy and cybernetics, pretend to advocate beardy and cybernetics because it's got such a, a, a positive uh, connotation. So um, for me, uh, you know, I think... Um, I, it seems like an obvious thing, but just the idea of being able to look at uh, a system recursively and to understand, you know, it's kind of, as you said, an aha moment where you say, okay, 
every system would have to have some kind of functionality in these ways that he lists through one through system one through five in in this VSM system. And he's not saying that systems should have this. He's saying that if it is a viable system that that reproduces itself and and functions in the world, uh, then it is it does have these um, it does have these uh, functionalities. Uh, now, whether they are good, uh, system one, system two, system three, four, five, that's another question. But um, that gives you a kind of lens through which to look at whatever you're looking at, whether it's um, social organizations, social movements, or a factory, or a farm, or whatever. And I know it's been widely applied. Um, people trying to apply it to all kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, just I mean, for me, just as simple as that. Just it gives you a lens that they, that for me is super uh, simple and effective, where you can say, okay, uh, you know, does this have a good uh, system three or whatever, and you can talk about it in those terms. It makes it very simple for me. So. Yeah, I guess that's all I would say. Yeah, so then Roger, how would, what do you think about that in terms of the ways that the viable system model is able to, or maybe just not able to, um, kind of like change things on the factory floor? Because that's kind of, it seemed like the main, not criticism, but like, well, maybe criticism that you were making. Well, the thing, uh, firstly, that I'm not entirely sure um, whether you need to have what will be considered as viable system in that um, in that sense of the word, that oftentimes we don't want a system that perpetuates itself. We may just want something that holds together long enough to get a job done and then everybody goes their separate ways. And um, this is now this is just something I'm thinking of um, off the top of my head because I've been trying to um, remind myself what there is in the VSM because I didn't... Uh, I came to it late, you know, and I was just looking at it for ideas to see if there's anything in this I can use. And just, and as well because of Chile, you know, to see what they'd done there. And going back, you know, I've been watching uh, some of the GIU reading group on Brain of the Firm. And all the way re listening through it, I'm just thinking there's nothing here that I could use. There's nothing about this, even if we are trying to make something long term. It's just a, it's just an abstraction that has been tried to sort of shoehorned into a biological model. And, you know, they, they actually call this a, a logical fallacy, an appeal to nature. And, you know, we're talking about this in the emails, that just because something works in a biological sense um, doesn't mean that it's going to match over well onto... Um, onto a human system. But I was thinking about a way to sort of illustrate this um, in very practical terms. And uh, so just one uh, example from human factors. There's something called a forcing function. And the way to illustrate, and this is a way to work around uh, the sort of the way the human mind can short circuit. And to illustrate this thing, if you've ever gone upstairs with the intention of bringing the vacuum cleaner down, and you you decide to go, you're going to go to the bathroom while you're up there. You go to the bathroom and then you're back downstairs again before you remember you meant to bring the vacuum cleaner down. So the only way around that that I've ever found is to go up, get the vacuum cleaner, put it at the top of the stairs, then go to the bathroom. And then you can't get back down the stairs without tripping over the vacuum cleaner. You know, it reminds you that you have to do this as well. 
and industri in industrial terms. That's something like there's a dangerous industrial plant having a lot of maintenance done on it. And like if you press this one button, something's going to happen you're not going to like. One simple thing you can just do is put a, a paper cup upside down over the button. Uh, so that if you're without thinking about it, if you're reaching for the button, you're going to hit the paper cup and think, oh, crap, I shouldn't do that. Uh, and, you know, that just at that basic level, that works. That would have, you know, something like that would have stopped Piper Alpha from exploding. And, um, you know, that's the level of practical um, kind of workplace design that I'm interested in. Uh, not sort of how cool the organizational chart looks, you know, even though um, I know there's a whole thing in beer about complaining about organizational charts, it's really just a different organizational chart. Or um, to put it in another way, I'll use the um, Vanguard method here. This is, um, the, it's a three-part model that you go down called check, plan, do, where you go through, um, where you go through a system. And this is specifically designed for service organizations. Then, you know, it started in call centers and you can sort of see that in its DNA, but it's spread out to all sorts of other things like um, utilities repair, housing maintenance, all sorts of other stuff like that. So um, the, the check part is six steps long. Uh, first is um, what is the purpose of this system? but specifically from the customer's point of view. And, you know, sometimes that's easy. You know, sometimes you know what the purpose of the system is. It says it over the door. Other times you, know, you have to, like, sit in the call center, listen to a lot of phone calls and figure out what people who call in actually want, you know, and not just what on the, the sort of job code says has been translated into. And sometimes it does need a bit more philosophizing and soul searching about, what are we actually doing here and what who is the customer like um there was one road maintenance organization where they decided it was actually simpler to just think of the road as the customer <laughs> uh, okay step two what are the types and frequencies of demand and specifically the the types are split into two which is value demand and failure demand and value demand is like what you're there to do. You know, a customer placing an order, starting an account, whatever. It's, you know, it's what you're here to do. Um, while failure demand is your, caused by your failure to do something or do something right for the customer, which is them like calling up saying stuff like, I don't understand the form. Where's the thing I ordered? I wanted a blue one. You sent me a red one, stuff like that. Uh, and then... Um, you, you map it all out, what's, what sort of stuff is coming in. Uh, and now we're on to step three, um, which is how well does the system respond to demand? Uh, and often that is like end-to-end um, -end time from the customer's point of view. You know, from, their, from them asking you for something, how long did it take you to get it to them? Step four, studying flow, which can mean a few different things depending on what you're in. Like how much of it is like, just a service industry, how much of it is like manual work that involves doing stuff like maintenance sort of jobs. And, and the stuff you particularly see here once you look into it is like, are there unnecessary handoffs? Does the work get passed around between multiple people? 
do you have to keep going back because the information was wrong or something wasn't done? Um, how many people does it actually take to do this? And, um, you know, obviously when you get to the redesign, you're trying to get this as simple and as smooth a flow as possible. Oh, got you. Um, okay, five and six are more. Uh, if you're starting a, a system designed from fresh, these wouldn't be such a big thing. But a lot of these systems, like half of them or more than half, maybe like rewiring people's minds out of the old way of thinking. You know, if you're stuck in like a, a target setting culture where everything or where everything's done, um, you know, passed down from up on high and there's, you know, the silos and all the, all the other bad organizational stuff that we probably all know about. And as we get a uh, stage five is understanding systems conditions, uh, you know, procedures, structure, contract, IT systems, stuff that's forcing you to do things a certain way. And then step six is management thinking, which is getting you to the point of questioning why things were done in that way in the first place, like what people thought they were trying to do. And, you know, that's a, that's the starting point. And then from there, you go through the um, various other stages to, to reorganize your system. But that, that is the first bit that tells you, you know, what you need to do in the next stages. And to me, that is just so much more practical um, than any, um, you know, theorizing about what makes a viable system and like communication lines or anything through that. If you just study the work, that'll pretty much tell you what you need to do for everything else without it needing to map on to any kind of um, abstract or idealized structure. Yeah, a lot, a, a lot of this stuff I noticed in that essay that you sent over about the, um, it was called The Socio-Technical Systems Perspective by Eric Trist, where they were kind of talking a little bit about there, like about um, the ways these kind of socio-technical systems have kind of operated in different sectors, but specifically like in the coal industry in the UK. Um, I noticed in there that he bought up to kind of get into this idea that you have about like kind of, you know, more practical organizational stuff. The author there bought up four different types of democracy, workplace democracy, industrial democracy, they said, that have kind of three of them have been tried. And the fourth one was kind of the one that he was putting forward, right? The one that maybe we should try and think more about. The first one he says is interest group democracy, which as far as I can tell, that's just unions, basically. The second is representative democracy, which is I kind of just seem to be workers councils or workers just being on boards and making decisions, things like that. Then he got into owner democracy, which was co-ops. And through all three of those, you're kind of like, okay, well, these all have their kind of pluses and minuses, right? But then when he gets into this fourth idea, which is kind of, I suppose, where you're leading with all of this, this idea of what he calls work-linked democracy, where he really tries to get away from the actual alienation of labor entirely, right? Like you can, kind of what you're saying, right? Like you can have maybe the viable system model set up at your workplace and still be kind of alienated from the labor that you're doing. Or you can have like, you know, workers councils, but when you go into, you know, work on Monday, you're still kind of doing the exact same kind of crummy alienating labor that you've always been doing. And it seemed interesting that this idea of like work linked democracy was a way to get around that. And from what I could tell, going through that essay and the essay that you sent over about the different Volvo plants, it seemed to be a way of kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of like opening up 
specialization to like a much bigger degree. So like people all work in teams. Like if you're talking about applying this kind of concrete way of reorganizing systems to like the Volvo plant, it was like people work in teams where there's a redundancy of skill where everybody knows how to kind of do most things on the car as opposed to just being like the schmuck that like, you know, screws in like the rear view mirror and that's all you do for every single car. Everybody kind of needs to know how to do everything. And what these essays kind of seem to be putting forward is that that not only helps get past alienation of labor, but it also kind of ups productivity in a really interesting way. So is is that kind of like a fair analysis, would you say, of kind of how we actually get past alienation of labor and kind of like the usefulness of these kind of concrete practical systems, as you say? Uh, yeah, I would say it's, um, the sort of multi-skilled workforce is a, a big part of it but not exclusively so sometimes uh, when you do get um when you do really study the work and figure out how it um how it's done you will figure out that there are some jobs that are pretty restricted in the way the system works and that's not necessarily a bad thing you know that can just mean you have an honest job advert that says like 85 percent plus of this job is just operating a manual filing system you know, and in that case, um, then it, it just works out as well, because then you get somebody who actually wants a job like that. But a great deal of the time, yeah, what once you understand what is going on and you redesign the work around it, a very multi-skilled workforce who um, who do a, a majority, you know, a great variety of the work is just the way it will shake out as that is the best way to do it, um, regardless of ideology. You know, that is just kind of what the job demands to be done optimally. And once workers start taking part in the redesign process, and it's, this is another thing where you've kind of, you, a lot of the time the workers will know what needs to be done. And when you ask them often, they'll have known for like 10 years, but just nobody asked them before. But occasionally you do need, they're so deep in what they do and you do need somebody else to stand back and just look at it from a distance and that may be a manager it may be a worker who's been tasked to do this and just see oh once we're looking at it from this way yeah i can see now what we need to do um but yeah there's um and once you get into this sort of thing of everybody being involved and uh, you get a massive scale of redesign of everything like in i think it's one of i think it's in one of deming's books it talks about this company who was or whether uh, they're working for the uh the look the authority or whatever who were working on underground utilities you know going down manholes and working on stuff underground and after they got through with studying everything they were doing they redesigned everything you know, they redesigned the, the sort of trucks they were using to do it. They had diff put different tools on the trucks, uh, completely changed how they were training people. And they had, I think they had something on the, the, the truck that was like a crane that lo actually lowered something down into the manhole that they'd never even thought of having before. But when they all put their heads together and decided what can we come up with, this was the sort of level of redesign that happens. And I guess, is that just a matter of like devolving authority or is it a matter of kind of like trying to balance autonomy and management? Like, how is it exactly that these kind of concrete proposals are 
are not only like sorting things out better, but, you know, managing autonomy, I guess. I think a lot of that depends on who is who it is who gets inspiration to make the change first. Because oftentimes it doesn't necessarily go how you think it'll go. A lot of the times it's like the top manager who, um, you know, who gets inspired to really change things. And often in the process of trying to get like middle management and the workers to like think for themselves and be able to operate more independently, they actually have to act in kind of a bullying way to do it, to break people out of their way of thinking. But on the other hand, if it's people, uh, somebody lower down the organization who gets the idea to do this first, um, that can go in a very different way. And I've actually heard um, in, in industrial safety, there's, uh, this has a similar sort of split in it. Um, with like the old way of doing it was the authoritarian, you know, everything's procedure, everything's in the manual, don't do anything without permission kind of thing. And then they moved it on to stuff with slogans more like um, safety to safety differently, a new view of safety, which brings in a lot more sort of management consulting type techniques, not just safety. And big chunks of them is getting the, um, the workers in charge of their own bit, you know, getting them to understand um, what the safety requirements are and um, what um, being able to ask for what they need. But in one instance I know of, that's the enthusiasm for starting that started really low down with like workers and lower management. And it became almost like a guerrilla campaign. Like they were passing these underground leaflets and pamphlets hand to hand, uh, suggest, you know, have you heard of this new safety system? And they spread it like that and got a lot of people supporting it. Um, I think before they sort of started presenting it to the higher management. So it can start in a lot of different places and um, and there's different techniques to spread it depending on where you start. Yeah, I'm interested in how all of this stuff, I guess, gets like, gets adopted, you know? Because like, Dan, you and I were talking right before this about like, um, it was interesting noting in like the Volvo plants at something along the lines of Udavala and Kalmar, how those plants it seems like they were given leave to try these kind of new um, progressive forms of industrial democracy and like workplace redesign it, pretty much at, at the exact same time. And this is no coincidence that there was like a massive like bout of labor unrest. And also obviously like during an essay about the coal fields, all of this stuff kind of happened at around the exact same time. So it's, it is very interesting seeing like the ways in which capitalism is able to innovate and the ways in which it's not able to innovate. I mean, like those Volvo plants are no longer around, right? Um, I suppose I just kind of wonder how this stuff gets adopted. And I suppose that's kind of like the interesting interplay between like a theory of social relations kind of as your starting point. But then also like if you actually want to, you know, like emancipate humanity or whatever, needing to have like a concrete understanding of the actual systems that you're trying to change right whether that be how you actually change things on the shop floor or like how you actually you know make work not this like horribly alienating process um so i guess it just i'm just wondering kind of like how these processes get adopted and kind of like where the industries manufacturing industries are at at the moment um i don't know don't know if you have any ideas on that about like where 
where these ideas have been adopted, where they've been kept on and where they haven't. Um, because I, I suppose I'm just wondering about capitalism's like ability or inability to actually redesign the workplace because it's frustrating. It seems like this stuff is actually what capitalists would want to do, right? Like it seems like it ups productivity. It makes better quality um, products. But at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like any of these things have really been adopted um, permanently, unless I'm wrong. Yeah, I was uh, I was recently on a on a tour of uh, a major um, major multinational company's uh, production facilities, big factory, um, thousands of workers, and uh, and a, a big operation. Um, you know, uh, uh, an electrical parts factory. Uh, they even had their own large tool making uh, facilities to repair their own machines and so on. So it's a big. It was a uh, quite a big modern uh, operation and uh and i was really struck by the uh extent to which a lot of things that 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 we talk about and we kind of assume i think that oh this stuff has been you know kind of uh absorbed by industry decades ago you know this kind of uh there's no kind of secret hidden knowledge here with the VSM or with the with cybernetics kind of thinking or systems thinking or any of that. It's just kind of uh, this is old hat, and now they have these um, very advanced uh, enterprise resource management type systems that are all derivative of this kind of thinking and so on. But uh, but no, uh, what I what I was very surprised about was the fact that um, the whole mentality, uh, and I asked a lot of questions about this, seemed to be just in terms of uh, counting production at every stage, uh, measuring the idle time on every machine, uh, which products are getting uh, made, you know, holding the the the, the, the lower down managers responsible, um, you know, sort of having an inquiry if if any production anywhere fell below the uh, the demanded amount and so on, and really none of the Toyota system kind of stuff uh, that I guess we haven't spoken about yet, but none of the kind of stuff about continual improvement all these kind of ideas um so yeah it's quite surprising to me to see to see that mo- at least some modern factories are uh, really in this pre uh, cybernetics mode and demanding uh, the most uh, most possible according to a very rigid kind of non-flexible kind of system again without any because i asked about it without any, any of this cross training all this nice kind of stuff you guys are talking about and multi roles and and workers figuring out everything for themselves, the best ways to do things without any of that, just in terms of like the words that the the quote that I can say, the words that were said to me was the reason the system works is because the workers aren't allowed to have any control over anything. And, uh, you know, sort of any, uh, anything to the contrary was, would not have been entertained at all, you know? So, and I'm sure some listeners who are working in, in, in big industrial, uh, um, production facilities will have that same experience. Uh, so it probably won't be a surprise to people. But um, I do have one question uh, for Roger. Maybe he, he can uh, have a think about this or uh, maybe he knows um, something about it. The, uh, the the system that they had and that they were very um, very keen to talk up was this uh, an MES system, uh, manufacturing uh, execution system. And they were kind of saying that... Um, that this was key to their uh, ability to uh, get the most out of uh, all production time and to uh, maximize uh, all of the the KPIs that they had. And I just wonder, is that, um, do you think, or from your experience, that 
manufacturing uh, execution systems. Is that the kind of um, uh, is that the, the you know that kind of very technical focus? Is that the focus on those kinds of firms that are not interested in uh, any kind of participation, any kind of uh, um, continual improvement, and all that kind of thing? That you know, uh, or or is that not right? So that's just something that uh, that I wanted to ask. Uh, well, firstly, I, have to say, I don't think I've ever heard of manufacturing. Ex- was it manufacturing execution system? That, that, that's how they put it to me. Yeah. What is it? Is it like a, a computer system or? Yeah, it's. Uh, my impression is it's it's in between a sort of what would be considered a bigger resource uh, management system that takes into account uh, all kinds of things. Um, you know, all, all kinds of uh, qualitative aspects. Uh, it's in between that uh, on the one hand and on the other hand, uh, as they put it to me, the replenishment system or the system of um, having this kind of uh, card system where uh, everything that's, uh, you know, this kind of pull system where everything that's uh, that's ordered is kind of replenished then uh, sent back to the be- beginning. So new orders are made for those input goods. And so it's something in between those two, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what... Well, that would be, but as you, to answer the other question about whether the um, whether they these sort of organisations that stay authoritarian focus on uh, these kind of uh, solutions, very definitely yes. There's there's actually a name for it. They call the people who do that the tool heads, the people who always want like some sort of system that you can sort of buy from some kind of vendor, install and make everybody else use it and just hope that will solve all your problems without having to study it yourself and really understand how it works. Yeah, that is a, a notorious problem. What what sense do you have about now how much a lot of this kind of, I forget what it was called, was it socio-technical systems, something like that? Um, how much a lot of this has been actually adopted by the capitalist class now, or has it kind of been thrown by the wayside? Uh, basically, the, there's um, well, it's interesting relating to the um, the article about the Volvo plants, about how they had this great humanistic kind of production system and it was really nice factory. And in possibly the most Scandinavian story ever, not only did every team have their own break room, but their own sauna. You know, it doesn't get any more Swedish than that. But as soon as they got the opportunity um, with a more harsh labor market, they didn't have to be nice to people anymore. They stopped it first chance they got. And I think this um, sort of suggests something wider about when you get into this sort of thing, it's not pure class interest. You know, like you said, it makes sense in the interests of the capitalists to do this to the hilt. You know, if you can set it up uh, so your workers can just uh, do everything by themselves and essentially you just sit back and let them make you rich and you just have to treat them nicely and they'll keep doing it. That sounds like the ultimate win condition for capitalism. But it's a lot more to do with sort of organizational inertia, bureaucratic self-interest, and narcissistic control. You know, so the the end of Kalmar and I'm assuming it's called Udavala, but Let's I haven't heard 
<laughs> I haven't heard it said somebody definitely who knows how to pronounce it say it, so I can't say that for sure. <laughs> so that when these things are shut down, it really should be seen more as like when Sophia Town was bulldozed. You know, that um, most mixed race community in apartheid South Africa, um, you know, vibrant nightlife, center of culture, center of political resistance, and they just wrecked it. You know, that doesn't mean that um, multiracial communities don't work. That means racists really don't like multiracial communities. You know, in a lot of these cases, when you see stuff like workplace democracy experiments being destroyed, it often is that. And we can't really put all the blame on management for that either. When a lot of these experiments come up against the forces of obstinacy in the union as well. And there's... um, I don't think I sent it to you, did I? A a human factors report on mining in America. And it just has one page that tells the story of this mine uh, where they tried to institute full independent work teams. They really went to town on it. And they had um, on certain faces, you know, in certain parts of the mine, they had workers pretty much working completely independently. And the union hated it. Uh, and just rallied around to destroy it. And and basically, they were the primary force behind the ending. And, you know, there may have been other stuff going on as well to do with stuff like seniority and other bits of union business. But basically, they just did not want... And it really came to a head when the, the mine company tried to roll it out so everybody could work like this. Somehow, the what may have been jealousy and envy on some point now they've got the chance to have it all for everybody they still didn't want it you know and and they shut it down so there's there's counter forces in both management and uh and the unions in this but one thing is when it is so much in the capitalist interest to do this and the the alternative is disastrous. They will generally do it, like how the airlines, although not being um, as good as they could be, and still having problems. Like this, uh, just last year, there was a report came out about how to introduce uh, human factors in maintenance, because that wasn't being done as well as like the cockpit stuff. <laughs> and in some cases, stuff like. Um, Scuba diving is actually more advanced in certain aspects like this. Like, um, you know, scuba divers, one option, you can have tanks of air on your back or you can have a rebreather that just sends the air around again and again and tops it up with oxygen, scrubs out the CO2. Those things are really sensitive and are really easy to kill yourself with. So one of the, like an example I read is there's one part of the maintenance process where you just take, you have to take the whole back panel off. And when you screw it down, it's very easy to stop too soon and not have it all the way down. And that is a catastrophic failure if you get in the water with it like that. So what they started doing was painting the inside a really bright color. So as you're tightening it down, if you can still see the bright color, um, you know you're not done yet. And um, that that's the sort of thing that... Um, they're actually now just trying to get introduced into aviation maintenance, surprisingly. And obviously, it, you know, what happened with the 737 MAX has taken a wrecking ball to the aviation 
reputation for safety when they just decided to put a new function on the plane and not tell the pilots it was there. You know, that sort of was a massive undercut of, you know, safety culture that they've been trying to build up since the 70s. And uh, so it really shows that even when you think this is so much in the capitalist interest to do it, they still find themselves tempted to undercut things like that as much as they can. And you, at a point, you've got to think, this can't be just about money now. You know, this is like narcissistic control or whatever you want to call it. This is about having, you know, power over others, treating others with contempt. Because there's no other way you can explain it that really makes sense. Maybe it's just economic determinism on my part, but I sort of feel like um, you want, maybe capitalism just always gets to a point in crisis conditions where it's just going to resort to disciplining labour as its sort of final resort and won't allow that kind of freedom to exist. Do you think that's a possibility? And the other thing that... Um, maybe go for that but also the other thing that springs to head mind is just that like the, there are conditions of class struggle that may come into play right and um the, the sort of the, the wider circumstances require a disciplining of um the working class perhaps I yeah there, there is definitely a at least a situation where that will be the temptation but like at volvo they started treating the workers nicely when they were in trouble you know when it when they um, okay. so when they couldn't get workers to uh, to either work there at all or stay once they were there, and their solution was to be nicer to the workers. So that suggests in other situations where a company is in trouble, being nicer to the workers may be the solution for them as well. If it isn't just anathema to how they think, it reminds me of I used to work at a place where they change the overtime policy to make it so that um, you wouldn't get your overtime directly after you worked, you know, like for each hour on top of 35 hours a week, right? They made it so that you had to work five extra hours. And then at that 40 hour mark, then you would start getting overtime, like time and a half or whatever, right? And when they changed that, a bunch of people were like, okay, well, fuck that. Like, I don't want to come in for overtime anymore, right? Like they were going to give people toil. They were going to give people time off in lieu, but people didn't really want that. They would rather, like they weren't getting paid enough and there weren't enough workers anyway. So people were just like, well, fuck that. I'm just not going to come in if I'm not going to make any more money. And the reason obviously that the management gave for this was they were like, well, you know, it's just not in the budget uh, anymore to, to be doing overtime like this. But then when they didn't get people signed up for any more shifts, what did they have to do? They had to go back out to um, like external third party agencies and get temps in. And the temps cost literally three times the wages of the normal workers. And then it's just like all of a sudden their budget is just blown out. And, you know, we went up to management. We we're like, what the fuck is the deal with this? What are you guys doing? And they go, oh, well, it's a different budget. Right. And it's like it's just impossible not to see that as something other than just a way to just discipline the working class. It's like, well, you want actual overtime? Fuck you. It doesn't we'll spend the money to get other people in, you know, higher temps who have like, you know, no uh, uh, consistency with work at all. We'd rather just bring them in than actually pay you guys. Right. Yeah, there's also this the book called We Sell Our Time No More, which is about that sort of thing in the car industry. And this is one of the things about um, Toyota production system. It's got a very mixed reputation. Like some people um, say, when it the in Japan, it was actually a pretty pleasant uh, system to work under. 
while others say it was like factories of misery, it was horrible. But at least that is kind of a contested history. But when they converted it to the for kind of Western audiences and turned it into lean, um, it deteriorated a lot and just became some of the most, you know, in the worst case scenarios, it became some of the most brutal, exploitative working conditions there were. And that that book, We Saw a Time No More, is about the car industry. But just earlier today, I was reading about crunch in software. And that is horrific. You know, I knew that was bad, but some of the, the stories of that is abysmal. And, you know, some of that is done under the, the same sort of um, kind of warping of organisational principles as well to to create this end where, you know, you're thinking like, how can the, the goal of this be anything but to make people suffer when everybody knows that, there are better methods that are even more profitable. I did a little bit of um, research into the Toyota method, and the thing that jumped out to me primarily was just the just-in-time production aspect of it. Um, and obviously that struck me um, in a negative way because of uh, how that came into my consciousness, at least during the pandemic and the sort of like problems with the supply chain and a lot of stuff was blamed on just-in-time production. I wonder whether you could like explain that that transition from the... Toyota method to sort of like lean production in the West and what was lost in that process, I suppose, or because when I read about the Toyota, I'm not even sure what it's called, uh, method, I was had a sort of negative response, but um, since been led to believe that was maybe um, incorrect on my part, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So what um, the generally what people would say is that the, when it was converted from Toyota production system to lean, was a book published in 1990 called The Machine That Changed the World, which took passed on some of the principles of um, Toyota production system, but also left a lot of it behind and twisted it in a way that made it more palatable to sort of Western management culture as it was. Um. So one one kind of example of the the kind of mind games they played is the the uh, the Volvo Udavala is actually mentioned in the machine that changed the world, and they dismiss it in a way that pretty much counts as libelous. You know, they accuse it of things that they didn't, you know, that just weren't true about like each part having to be like sort of finished with a file to make it fit. You know, kind of thing. Um, they dismissed it as a thing called, called neo-craftsmanship uh, to make it sound like it was like an old nostalgic thing that they were trying to go back to. And um, to give you a sense of the difference in psychology, um, you know, they were so disdainful of it. You know, the, the sort of aristocratic looking down their nose way of saying, we can't see how this could ever work properly. Whereas... Taichi Ono, when he was asked about the the same system in Volvo, um, he just said, what they're doing there is so different from what we're doing. I don't feel qualified to comment on it, you know, and, which gives you a sense of how um, the, the original Japanese uh, founders of the system were way more open minded to alternatives and a sense of how when it started being pushed in the West, uh, it became more of a cult 
you know, and this more narrow view of specific things you have to do. And that's part of where the term tool heads comes from, is people who don't want to understand the whole system. They just want a few things to throw at the problem. And um, and specifically to just in time, there's, there's kind of layers to this. It was... Um, Part of it is a specific solution to the situation Toyota found themselves in and to do with their um, limited financial and economic resources uh, and the limited number of machines and stuff they had. A big part of what they had to do was to have the product flow through the system as quickly as possible. And that leads to several things like just-in-time production is part of it. But another thing is what they call a single minute exchange of dyes, which was a specific term to do with metal pressing, but it became a principle wider across the organization. And they had these big American metal pressers that if you just followed the manual of how you change the dye on one, you know, so it, when it compresses, it makes a different shape. Um, it originally took three days to change from one to the other. And Ford can get away with that because they've got like 10 of them lined up. Uh, Toyota had, they either had like one or three or some very small number. So they went to work trying to figure out as much as possible how fast you could change it from doing one job to another. And part of this was a thing they called internal and external setup, which was like how much of the changeover procedure can you do while the system is still running? They did a lot of other stuff as well, but... Um, basically, they got this down from three days to 55 seconds, which just sounds like magic. It's amazing. And as part of all this fast flow system, just in time was part of that because they didn't want to have massive warehouses. They, if they could even afford a warehouse full of stuff, um, they had, you know, they ended up with stuff piled up everywhere. It would be a mess. So they wanted to set up this system where everything would just flow smoothly from one end to the other and then be out the far end that they wouldn't have to worry about it. And this creates this extreme anti-stock, anti-inventory mentality and um, where you want as little stock on hand as possible, as little work in progress as possible. But over time, this has kind of softened. It's that. Uh, Okay, give you an example from physical culture and, you know, sort of weight training culture. There's a thing they say, even if somebody is like, say, a power lifter, just a strength athlete who doesn't care about, you know, their physique, they can get away with being pretty fat. That at some point in their career, just once, they should do a bodybuilding cycle and go down to like under 5% body fat. And um, partly just for the experience but also it's good for their health because it kind of burns the unhealthy fat off. And like all the pesticides that were banned in the 80s and have been trapped in your fat come out of your body when you do that. You get down to low body fat, you do your competition, you've got all sorts of horror stories to tell what you did to make weight. And then once you've done it once, if you don't want a further career in bodybuilding, you can just eat a pizza, go back to um, a more sustainable diet and fat will come back on your body, but it'll be different fat. It'll be healthier and it may be in different places on your body. And there's sort of an attitude of treating stock in an organization like that. 
you cut it down really low to make your, your system flow as efficiently as possible and uncover all your problems. Um, and once you're down as low as you can, then you can start thinking about building it back up in a healthy way. You know, like where should we put our safety stock? How much should we have on hand? Um, where would it best be placed in the process? And then you've got a system that doesn't fall apart if somebody needs to go to the bathroom. You know, you've got, and then you can build it beyond that if you need to be able to survive system shock and be able to operate for a while if you're not getting supplies delivered or if something else goes wrong. And, um, and it also depends uh, whether you make to stock or make to order is dependent on stuff like, well, partly how big the product is. You know, cars are big and take up a lot of space, so it's more in the interest of a car company to keep stock down. But if you can fit like a dozen products on a shelf, you can have a massive stockpile of stuff just on hand and it doesn't really cost you anything. And then you can fulfill customer order quicker. You know, that's another thing. Uh, if customers want their product really quickly, then that's uh, that can tip you towards make to stock rather than make to order. And, uh, you know, there's also nuances in it. Like there's a thing called the theory of constraints, which was um, uh, described in Eliyahu Goldratt's novel, The Goal which was sort of fictionalized way of explaining the principle, which is in any kind of process, there'll be a bottleneck somewhere. There'll be something that keeps pinching, you know, and isn't flowing as smooth. And there's all sorts of stuff you can do to try and improve this. But one is you have a big pile of stock in front of it, you're ready to feed into it, and a big space for stock behind it. So it, what it produces has somewhere to go, which means that wherever there's a problem in the line, like either in front of it or after it, regardless, it can keep working. And that's the thing you want to do. You know, if that's the choke point, you don't want that to stop for anything if possible, because that's the um, the restraint on everything else. You know, how much that produces determines how much everything produces. So controlling stock around it is one way to keep it going as much as possible. That example of um, having to rapidly remake an economy or an economic model that was inherent in that sort of reminded me of something I think you said in some of your correspondence it's about um how important studying these kind of things might be to actually managing the process of a transition to a socialist economy which as we would admit would be like quite a fundamental transformation um but the other thing that I, I thought was thinking about when I was thinking about just in time was how it might apply to um, a socialist planned economy along the lines of um, labor time planning. This might be a question for Donald, because one of the things I was just thinking when you were speaking then was maybe under some kind of socialist economy um, where labor time accounting managed the transition of um, stock between firms, maybe you would even have more, if we're going to have workplace democracy, would you then have like smaller firms, more exchange? Is there, um, oh, I don't know whether there's something you've been thinking about in your um, preparing to write your book, Donald, is that like how that process of exchange would be managed, I guess, and whether there are applications for that sort of like social, that, that just in time approach or the Toyota um, model that have implications for that kind of aspect of socialist planning. I don't know whether that makes sense. <laughs> There's a, one of the um, one of the things that, that Roger said to me is interesting in this discussion because uh, just by by way of contrast, so um, 
it's an article uh, by a guy called Bob Carter, and the name, of the, the title of the article is "A Lean Future for Workers: A Response to Matt Vidal's Management Divided." Now, Management Divided is a book that uh, I think you've read, brother. You were telling me, and uh, can probably talk more about. But um, but but it's it was an oh you have it there okay very good uh, it's an interesting uh, it was an interesting review a critical review because basically one of the things he was coming at it from this guy was saying look the unions and workers in general uh, both are and should be really against the lean system in the system that we have now or against any kind of thing like this however perfectly it's implemented because a more perfect valorization means a more robust production process and it means more precarity for the individual worker or the individual function of the individual worker. So he's kind of coming at it from the point of view of saying, like, you know, in, in if you give workers autonomy in, in the capitalist system to really, like, let's say this all, all this stuff works, you know, it really works and it does make the production process more perfect and, uh, and you know, and so on. What that really means is a more perfect valorization of the of uh, of uh, value in the uh, in the Marxist sense, and so it it acts against the interests of the workers who are there. So that's uh, and and this is a back and forth. Uh, I know discussion. That's a pretty recent article, and so this is a really ongoing discussion um, about whether actually people on the on the left. And whether Marxists should actually be uh, advocating for this kind of stuff at all, uh, or whether our line actually should be that the unions, any unions that are against this stuff, are are actually right that uh, this is really bad stuff, and uh, um, it you know it can't be in in the interests of of workers. So that's an, an interesting discussion. I think in a socialist economy, um, a lot of the those downsides, a lot of those things that would make it potentially against the interests of workers to to have a, a great production system are are gotten rid of because um it's really a question it it becomes a question a more robust system a more uh comfortable system to work in um you know a more efficient system um and so on becomes something that's just uh um something that the the the, the commune or the community uh resources in terms of um, in terms of uh, what they want to produce, in terms of use values, where they're not they're not interested in selling the things and reducing the um, uh, you know reducing the amount of real consumption that goes to the workers, because you know they can uh, like in capitalism they can take it and do something else with that surplus. That's not uh, of course going to enter into it. So I would I would definitely think that in the that in the socialist economy, without you know at a very high level. I would think that it should be um, something that would be in in people's interest much more. You know that there's a lot. Uh, hope, you know that there would be objectively, I think, a lot less uh, reasons to uh, to be worried about it. But um, but yeah, I think I think it's a bigger question about today. Uh, maybe a more uh, more difficult one to answer. The, what the the questions that this management divided book raises. Uh, well, firstly, from uh... I would say definitely yes, the unions, the workers are completely right to resist any implementation of evil lean. You know, the stuff that all the horror stories are based on. Yeah, fight that tooth and nail, no question. 
But the the other side of it is if you get in the actual well-designed workplace that is a, a pleasant place to work and you've got more autonomy over what you're doing, if that makes the... Um, they work better for capitalism so the the bosses are getting more profit in one sense that at the very least then you can ask for more a share of that you know if the, there has to be some more, more money there for you to ask for more of it but even if we take that out of the equation and um you're not getting any more money but you are getting a, a better workplace and the key point is, at the same time, you're learning how to operate the means of production. That's a pretty good deal. That's a lot of future potential. You know, and um, there are uh, a few other things to, to catch up on. They're in the sense of um, how the, uh, the greater economy works, there's what's, um, what's known as a pull system is the alternative to what they call push is just the standard way of doing things for a long time which was just churn out product and then try and sell them um you know that in that went in with um all the sort of authoritarian management and stuff as well you know they kind of came together as a package and what you see in a lot of the socialist planning stuff is an attempt to create a socialist push system you know, in a lot of the economic planning books, clearly when it says sort of like workers' councils say how much they want to make, that's pure push system. And the alternative is the pull system, which is where you imagine like the uh, the customer places an order and that sort of pulls on a chain. And this chain leads all the way through the production line and starts pulling their product from the end of the production line through the process and then the chain extends further up the supply line all the way up to whatever the prime components are the steel mill or whatever and it pulls more through the entire system so basically you don't really need to work like if you hire builders to work on your house their arrangements with their subcontractors and the builders merchant isn't your concern um you know, they handle that. And that's the same way a pull system works is people know each other up the supply chain. They know what each other's industries are capable of, like hopefully at least. Uh, so then they can just adapt. You know, if the, the frontline product, whatever the factory is on the front line that's making something for somebody, if their orders increase, they just order more from their own suppliers. And hope, you know, if they need a massive change in capacity, that's more complicated. And, you you know, you have to do a project to change that. And that would be the case for, say, if you wanted to build a new railway line or something, that's the big end of the scale. That's different. Needs more planning. But for the most part, then you just want the economy to operate on a pull system. So you just tell the front line of it what it wants, what you want. And the rest of it just sort of works its way through the industrial metabolism. And this will hit a wall eventually, like if demand gets high enough, uh, like say if you're in the workers' council deciding, um, placing all these big orders, 
Yeah, I'll tell you the best feedback is when all the people who work at the steel mill start getting into a cold sweat and looking really uncomfortable. You know this is starting to cross the line and it's more than they can easily provide. And you may need to either space out the order more or beef up the steelworks before you do this or whatever. But following on from that, specifically the question about uh, using labor time to calculate the flow of products between firms. Okay, you've got a big logistical problem here because it just doesn't match up. You know, how many labor hours do you fit in a shipping container? You know, it's not an object, you know, it's not a match you can compare from one thing to another. But I think this is all um, part of a bigger question, which is the like the socialist calculation debate. And I can kind of prove the socialist calculation debate is bullshit in one sentence. And, and this is it, right? Imagine trying to fly a plane or operate a power station when all the instruments are graduated in dollars. That just basically says everything about what, you know, what the value of prices is. It's basically meaningless if you're actually trying to do something. I mean, imagine like having a plane and one of the instruments is like the airline's stock price. Uh, or if the, there's like a run on fuel prices and the gauge says the value of your fuel is going up. So it looks like you're getting more of it, even though you're burning it in cruise flight. Can I just ask you something on that? So then is the implication there then that like, that just the labor time calculation just isn't enough and that like actually like focus as well needs to go on to actual logistical problems because it's in like hearing you hearing you talk about like um, a pull system it really reminds me of kind of what seems to be already being done i mean my research into this consists of reading people's republic of walmart but in something like walmart right and so like there obviously price comes into it but it's also just a question of having kind of one ecosystem of a supply chain so then it, it, I suppose is what you're saying, like an economic unit of account is one thing, but then also on top of that, building logistical structures that can kind of adapt, I suppose, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, it's big. It's because the, the price doesn't actually tell you anything, you know, the, it doesn't, well, basically, you know, the, the basic idea of the anti-planning argument is you need price to tell you what's going on in the system well think about in terms of an organization where money doesn't come into it or if it does it's very far removed you know like a suicide helpline knows how many phone calls they've gotten an artillery crew knows how many shells they've shot off because they can count they didn't need a market to tell them these things Okay, I I suppose that makes sense. I liked in your your correspondence with us earlier where you were basically just saying um, haven't kind of the people who are talking on the left about planning haven't any of these people heard of like logistics managers and it does seem to be just as simple as that right for a lot of these things right it does seem you know and Donald I'm interested to know what you make of all of this in terms of like actually using labor time as a unit of account but um, a lot of a lot of the times it seems like we stress ourselves out by being like Roger exactly what you're saying like. Uh, uh, oh no, now people all of a sudden want a different type of shoe. However, will our economy adapt to that? And it's like, well, there are people now whose jobs it is to adapt to that and to figure it out. Um, and it isn't actually as big of a deal as we're kind of all making it out to be, right? Yeah, big, a big part of the economic planning books just seem to be justifying incredibly shitty lead times. <laughs>
Donald, what what is your thinking on this kind of brought you to in terms of logistics and how it relates to labor time stuff? Yeah, uh, I think that's that, that's a really powerful uh, little ar- uh, argument uh, as far as the push system stuff. So I'm reminded immediately of uh, of some of the the models that are out there. I know you know the I don't know if you're familiar with this Paricon is one of the the, the models and uh, that uh, does kind of focus on the idea of saying okay, well you've got the you've got the, the workplace councils over here and you've got the consumer councils over here and the workplace councils will put forward a sort of um, a production uh, proposal and then there'll be a sort of iterative process to try to match them. So they get around the idea of, well, you don't need a market because you can have this kind of negotiation, coordination kind of somehow. But um, but yeah, it's very much a push system, right? So um I think uh, I think what you're saying, you know, in terms of a real economy, in terms of how real logistics works, um, you know, I think it. Uh, I think anything other than a pull system is very uh, is very hard to do. Like it's very, you know, it's almost irrational to uh, to to you know from its conception. So uh, a pull system, um, you know, in uh, I think in in. Uh, in the USSR, they had, uh, you know, considerable again uh, emphasis on the idea of a push system, almost on a sort of ideological basis. And so, um, yeah, I would say, uh, uh, you know, a pull system seems to me to be uh, granted with all of the stuff about buffers that are necessary and everything else, but seems to generally be the right principle. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, with the book that uh, I know uh, the three of us, uh, me and. Jack and Dan have read the uh, fundamental principles of communist production and distribution by a guy called Jan Appel, um, and he was uh, a Dutch um, communist in the nineteen twenties. Wrote this book, but uh, it very much fits into the idea of a of a, of a kind of pull system in a kind of natural way. Now, you may not um, agree with the the labor time accounting aspect of it, but um, but I think you would appreciate the. Uh, w- one part of it, which is the idea of a general ledger, where you say, okay, you can, uh, in, a, in in this kind of economy, you don't have to have trade secrets, you don't have to have a competitive market where, you know, where there's kind of secrets being kept between companies, you can have everything available on a public ledger. And then you can have a pull system directly from that public ledger where anyone can pull and you can see on the ledger all the way back through the line everything being pulled so you can see all the capacity utilizations and so on all the way back so i think that's the kind of thing that becomes possible when you have a, a social a socially um, uh, contr- directly social as as they say economy rather than having um either competitive firms or else some kind of planning bureau which has to be almost by its nature a push system so I don't know what you think about that, but uh, it's if you haven't uh, heard of that book, I I would recommend having a look. I think you would be interested. Yeah, I've um I haven't read it, but I've watched a lot of the videos on it, um, and it's kind of blurred. You know, I've, I kind of got uh, into this fairly quickly. Like I watched all the uh, the videos. You know, like I watched uh, your channel, General Intellect Unit, um, Future Histories after the oligarchy, you know, in very quick succession, watched a lot of videos after, so all these different plans are kind of blurring together in my head. But one thing about the the general ledger is what actually makes me think of is the kind of 
extreme high detail knowledge you have in computer games you know like in a sims game uh, like a sim city game or tropico or something like that where you've just got all these overlays you can put on the map and it'll just tell you like where all the gold is or where wheat will grow best or whatever you know where all the pollution is and stuff like that and while that stuff will be very handy to have i think it's important to to say it's not necessary you know the a socialist economy would have been possible before the age of computers. You don't have to have the, the big picture everywhere. You know, you just need to know like a, a bit up and down your own supply chain. And the rest can sort of take care of itself. It's maybe not as efficient as the way you could trim it if you had all the information to work with. But it's important that we don't let the revolution get conned into buying enterprise resource management software. You know, as like the solution, uh, because the IT industry has done enough smash and grab raids and they're shameless enough to try it against us, you know. Surely, though, like when we're when we're talking about like big, maybe like even planet wide uh, projects, right, you would need something like that, right, to like really like root everything in space and really understand like okay here's where these resources are like partially that's just because resources aren't distributed evenly across the world right you're going to run into different power dynamics even in a socialist society of like okay how are we going to get all of our cobalt right all of these different things like um i think like maybe there would need to be some recursion level at the top where it's like okay here's like, am I crazy in thinking that? Like, you're going to need something that kind of roots everything in space and understands how you can kind of plan large-scale things like that? Well, if you think about the sort of massive projects that were built before computers, some pretty impressive stuff was done. And I think it's one of the things is, uh, rather than thinking of it as being like in a, a great big book or a computer, if you get the, the sort of top professionals in any field together, they're going to know that stuff. You know, like if you get the, the top people together from like copper mining and copper refining, they know where the deposits are. They're going to know where it's going to have to come from. They're going to know where there's potentially more of it. Um, and obviously you're going to use some... You know, obviously computers are massively helpful in a great many, many ways uh, and make things incredibly more efficient. <laughs> but it's just, um, you know, that saying every automation is an amputation. Kind of once you become dependent on a machine to do something for you, you quickly start losing the ability to do it yourself. And you've got also Jaron Lanier's book, uh, You Are Not a Gadget where he talks about um, people sort of idolizing the computer. And once they get into the idea that the computer is best, in ways, even in ways where the computer is clearly inferior to people, um, they'll actually start downgrading human capacity and start trying to act more like a computer just because they've got it in their head that computers are great. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, another thing, going back to the Vanguard method, they've got a, a thing which I honestly officially call it this, but I think of it as IT minimalism, where it's like IT last. And you go through the whole, the whole system and you try and optimize it as much as possible before you bring in any computers. Or if there are already computers there, you either turn it off or just deal it as a, you know, think of it as a constraint that you can't really do anything about. 
And only when you've got the system flowing as well as you possibly can, do you like bring in the computer people and say, how can you make this better? And there's a, there's a real funny example of this from uh, housing maintenance in, uh, I could look it up, it's like Plymouth or Portsmouth or something like that. And um, they got everything flowing incredibly smoothly, like how they were sending out the tradesmen to do, you know, they were booking it in with customers, like almost to the minute when you say you want the tradesmen to arrive, they'd actually arrive. You know, it's not just a, a big gap of morning or afternoon or something like that. And um, the tradesmen would arrive. They'd been through like everything they needed on their van to work optimally. And this actually led to a spin-off consulting company who makes a piece of software called Stock Right Now, which is just about keeping optimal stock like on the van in stores, places like that. But that only came later. You know, they were turning up on time. They were, And they had this arrangement with all the builders' merchants to deliver stuff just in time. So, like, the new bath would be arriving just as the old one was coming down the stairs. Stuff like that. And this is it. They've got it running incredibly efficiently. And finally, they, they start thinking, we've got this about as good as we can. Uh, let's just bring in some programmers, see what they think they can do with it. Uh, and... It, They've got it so, you know, when you think about how IT projects like this usually work, how insanely long you expect this project to take, how much it's going to cost. I think it was actually just one person, this programmer they brought in. Um, and it looks and said, oh, yeah, yeah, I can make this work better. Um, like it'll cost, uh, it'll cost you £2,000 and it'll take three weeks. Uh, and they said, if, you, if we give you £3,000, can you do it in two weeks? And he said, yes. And I've seen film of it operating and it's in a darkened room, so you can't really see what's exactly what this would look like in full light. But it's dramatic, you know, it's like this big TV with like lights moving around on it, symbolizing where people are and what they're doing and stuff. And it looks like the bridge of the Battlestar Galactica. You know, it's this really impressive thing that was really quick and cheap to do because they saved it till last. And um, Obviously, with that, this sort of IT last attitude, you can't do it everywhere. You know, if you're doing something like credit card processing, um, you're in the computer business whether you like it or not. And then you are just stuck com with computers first. But every opportunity you get to do this without computers, with the minimal amount of computers, you should take it. Right on. I, I, I'm conscious we've been recording for a while and I don't want to go on too long. And I also think that we have a free <laughs> trial of the software so we can't go past a certain limit. But one, one last thing I wanted to ask you was um, kind of how, if you see any laws kind of applying to different workplaces, kind of in aggregate, any similar laws, because I know that like one of the things that um, Dan and I have kind of come across and that we've kind of questioned before is like the biological basis of a lot of this stuff. And specifically there's that book. Um, is it the tree? I always forget if it's the tree of knowledge or tree of life, but it's a Maturan and Varela book. And they basically try to make the whole point, right. That like all systems operate in the same way from like, you know, a single cell organism or something all the way up to social systems, all the way up to all of these things, you can like apply all of these specific laws. And so I'm wondering like if when we're actually thinking about, you know, liberating the workplace, de-alienating the workplace, if there are certain laws that we can apply to, you know, the shoemaking factory or the service sector, you know, like I know that the Vanguard method we've talked a lot about kind of talks a little bit about like um, 
service sector stuff like uh, um, maybe like healthcare or something like that. So I'm wondering if there are kind of specific laws, you know, soft laws even that you can kind of apply to all of these different things. Um, or, or if that's kind of just not really being specific enough and that's not something that you can really do. Well, this is kind of a specific one, but one of the, the general rules is if you try to manage costs, costs go up. You know, if you try and penny pinch, you're going to make it worse. It's always cheaper to do it right first time if you can. I suppose, what about like, um, like uh, organizationally, like shop floor stuff? Because I know that that was kind of one of the big criticisms of the BSM, right? Is that uh, that you bought up that like maybe this stuff doesn't actually tell you what you're going to be doing on Monday morning or whatever when you go into the shop floor. Are there certain things that we can kind of like apply to different workplaces that will? Because it, you know, the Bible system model does kind of like uh, uh, put itself forward as this thing that you can kind of apply to these different workplaces. And if you want them to be viable systems, you know, you got to have all of these parts, right? Or if that is kind of a fallacy. Oh yeah, well, I'd say that this is kind of a it's kind of a cheat that works around the the question. But I say um, the the general rule is study the work, and that'll tell you what you need to do. Once you understand the work, the vast majority of everything else will become clear. And it may, every, there may be local solutions. You know, everywhere, once you've studied the work, everywhere will turn out to be different. Uh, and depending on what your circumstances are, what customer demand, customer demand is, uh, the nature of your workforce, the nature of your workplace. And once this starts being done, you get things like pharmacies in two hospitals in the same city that work in completely different ways because what their patients need is different. Or you get different branches of the same overall bank offering different services at their different branches because that's what the people there need. And um, you can get stuff like, you know, it's specific, that's specific to like customer need, but it can come in all sorts of details, like what your workforce needs, uh, the nature of the building you're in, um, all sorts of, so, you know, if the white guards are shelling the town, you know, whatever it is that is altering your system. Once you study the work and understand what needs to be done, everything else just becomes clear. music you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion till next time Whoa.